Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Claire Boyles about her debut collection of short stories, Sight Fidelity. The phrase Sight Fidelity is a population's tendency to return home. Boyle's characters, many of them biological family, return to each other in caregiving roles and in times of loss, all alongside an irrevocably changing planet. She lives in Loveland, Colorado. Claire, welcome to The Right Question. Thank you so much for having me. Where are you Zooming in from right now? Uh, Loveland, Colorado, from my home. So you're Zooming in from Loveland, but I want to know about another Colorado town. Claire, tell me about Greeley, Colorado. Greeley is about 20 miles east of where of Loveland, where I live now. It's out on the eastern plains, so it's before you hit the foothills, but you can see them of the Rocky Mountains, but you can see the mountains in the distance. And we lived about 15 miles east of Greeley uh, for about five years when we were working on our small-scale organic vegetable farm. Can you tell listeners a little bit about this farm, um, the story of it, how it came to be yours, and ultimately how you left it? Sure. Uh, my husband and I were, um, we, we, were, we thought a farm might be a good business for us to start. My husband's a horticulturalist, and we were just kind of looking for a change we made one. <laughs> we bought 20 acres pretty far away from where we were living, which is in Fort Collins, which is near here. And it took us a long time to find 20 acres with the water rights that it takes to grow uh, vegetables here in Colorado. And we lived on that farm and worked it for about five years. Uh, we grew, we had a community supported agriculture program and we did farmers markets and we grew really all different kinds of vegetables and specialty field grown cut flowers. And we raised chickens for meat and eggs and pork, just a few hogs every year. So we bought the farm in 2008. And then the, by the end of 2008, you know, the market crashed and we had just put everything we had into the farm. Um, we were underwater after that on our mortgage the entire time we worked the farm. It was just a financial hurdle we could never really get over. So in 2013, we sold the farm and moved back to town and we sold it in sort of a panic, worried that we would lose it before we could sell it. It was a pretty stressful uh, financial moment for us, but we made it out, you know, it was a softer landing than we were expecting. We feel really lucky. Was that an emotional time for you? Not only like because of the financial stress, but this idea that you lost something that you had worked so hard for? Yes, it was, you know, it was a dream that we had and it was something that we loved doing despite the fact that it was exhausting and the, the finances just never really <laughs> made sense. It was just a hole we just seemed to keep digging every year. Growing the vegetables and the community that we had with our customers around the farm and the life that we had out there. Our kids were very small at the time. They were three and five when we moved to the farm and just the life was very happy. And it felt 
like a very ethical way to live. We felt like we were making a difference, growing food in a way that was sustainable on the land. And so to lose that was not only, it required us to rethink our whole lives, you know, really like, what do we do now? It was not entirely clear at that moment. And it was also, it felt to us like a very public failure. Everyone we knew knew we bought the farm and everyone we knew knew we couldn't manage to keep it. And it took a couple of years to kind of find our feet again, I think. Do the remnants of that time still exist in your life somehow? Are you still, do you still have relationships with other farmers in the area? Do you still frequent farmers markets? How, how does that exist now in your life? We are still connected with the farmers we knew at that time, especially the other small scale farmers who are also building farms. Um, and I still volunteer for friends of mine on their farms and we still buy our food from those farmers and stay connected in that way. I think the farm has stayed with us in, in a number of ways, like in knowing that we can recover, you know, in believing that like life is a cycle, you can recover from failure. I think it helped me have the courage to try to start a writing career, sort of knowing that, you know, if the worst that could happen happened, what is that really? What does that even mean? I'm still me, still have the people around me. I still, you know, I, I think it was helpful in getting, trying something else that was difficult. <laughs> what a beautiful lesson to learn and something to learn about yourself. Yeah, it was hard. It was a hard one, I think, but yeah. I'm grateful for it. <laughs> Well, I, I want to try to connect this idea of farming to a phrase that graces your book cover. Um, it's a phrase that is being used to sell your book, and it's this idea of the American West. How did farming or ha how has farming shaped or changed what you know to be the American West? Oh, that's a really, that's a good question. I, the work of farming helped me understand what it means to participate in the systems of the American West. And by that, I mean, in the context of the book, the, the stories are all set against a background of extraction industries, mining and oil and gas and agriculture. And those are industries and really mindsets that I think the West was built on. And even though we were sustainable farmers and we were farming using organic practices, we couldn't live as far out of the system as, you know, might be a completely ideal situation. We were reliant on the system of irrigation ditches and water rights that govern the West, which are really complicated and not entirely ethical. You know, I, I have a lot of questions about whether a resource as precious as water can, you know, should be private property in that way. But we owned it. We had to. There was no option. And so I think it helped me understand what it means to be complicit in a system and reliant on a system that you don't entirely believe is the right way to live, even though you might be trying to live better within that system, which I think is the contradiction of the American West since it was founded. It might be capitalism in general that we're all stuck within a system that doesn't entirely feel ethical 
so there's not always a completely ethical way to live within it. So I think for me, that's what it showed me about the West, that that I have a lot of criticisms of the industries and the the ideology and the stories that we tell ourselves about the West. And in the end, living in the West, you we are all part of that story. And we have to find a way to to think about what it means to be alive in this moment in this region. So that's a that, that's a pretty pragmatic answer to that question. I'm wondering then, what does the phrase the American West mean to you? What is Claire Boyle's American West? I guess in the context of farming, or really in the context of what I think I was taught the West meant is a certain amount of freedom and independence and self-determination that you could, you know, make your own way in the world and, you know, build the life that you wanted and that if you worked hard enough, that life would would materialize, like that's what would happen. And I guess I think that wasn't my experience of the American West and I don't think it's many people's experience of the American West because, because of the way we've sort of structured our lives and societies around it. I don't know how to separate the pragmatic from the romantic because I just feel like they're so connected. Like my lived experience of being a farmer and my lived experience of just being a human in the Western United States. I mean, I grew up in Nevada mostly and then I moved to Colorado for college and I've more or less been here ever since. And so, you know, this idea that like you see on postcards with like cowboys and open range and things like that. I mean, I I love the open spaces of the West and and public lands I think are really important, but it's so complicated and it's it's so much deeper than what the myth of the American West says. The traditional myth of the American West might tell you that it is. In your story Ledgers, you write about Nora, a woman who is caring for her father. He's a rancher who's had a stroke and has been forced to sell his ranch in order to pay his medical bills. In this story, you write of the Gunnison sage grouse and the sage grouse's sight fidelity. Can you explain sight fidelity and maybe how you see it threaded throughout the novel? I, I certainly have my own ideas, but I would love to hear your perspective on that. I learned about sight fidelity while I was writing the story in the context of the Gunnison sage grouse, but it's true for a lot of animals. It's a scientific term for the tendency to return to the same place over and over and over again, often for, it's often tied to breeding behaviors. And the Gunnison sage grouse stood out to me, the sight fidelity of the Gunnison sage grouse, because they are so threatened. And because of the story that I used, it's a real life story, and I put it in the short story ledgers where when the system of dams and reservoirs were built along the Gunnison River in the 1960s, they were built on top of Gunnison sage grouse breeding wrecks, even though the Gunnison sage grouse weren't identified as a separate species until the year 2000. And so people observed the birds returning every spring. So the first spring after the reservoir was built, the birds returned to water and a layer of ice on top of their breeding ground and they can't adapt to it. So they watched them like try to do their mating behavior on top of the ice. It was absolutely ineffective. And so the next year, 
far fewer birds came back. And the year after that, far fewer birds came back until they just died out. They don't find other leks and they don't adapt. And it just seemed like a metaphor for, like it could be applied to human relationships to the lands they live on in terms of how much they're connected to, how much we are connected to them and how much we care for them. But also since we're destroying them, you know, the danger is once they're gone, we won't be able to adapt. It just felt really layered to me, that idea of site fidelity. Once I realized that it it did sort of frame all of the stories in the book in a certain way, it felt like the right choice for for a title, although it, it didn't it didn't start out as like an organizing principle idea. Yeah. I really like this idea of that being applied to humans because you're right. We are like a, a strange species who are, you know, making this home and continually coming back to it, especially in context to climate change, I feel like as a species who continually returns to the same places over and over, that question of adaptation is probably more and more at the forefront. We're going to have a ton of people who are going to become climate refugees traveling all over the country. And it's going to be a really, really interesting is not the word. It's going to be strange. It's going to be scary to see how we as a species adapt to that. Yes. And I think to go back to your question about the American West. I mean, the story of the Gunnison sage grouse is so deeply embedded in issues of private land ownership and distrust of government intervention and conservation issues versus how you make a living on your lands and really how there is no one way a rancher sees that. There is no one way an environmentalist sees that. There is no one way a farmer might see that. There's just really complicated opinions and relationships, and it's all intertwined in difficult ways. And so while I am on the side of biodiversity, I am on the side of the Gunnison sage grouse. I I love those birds. I'm on the side of living things above profit Mm -hmm. all the time. I also recognize having been someone who was farming the land, that's not without cost to the land, no matter how sustainable you are. So again, I just think it it's complicated. And that's what those are some of the legacies of the West that I think make dealing with the environmental problems we're facing more difficult. So before we take up so many minutes with our Q&A here. I'm hoping that you might be willing to read something, an excerpt from Site Fidelity and Dealer's Choice. Whatever you are comfortable reading or want to read, I would love to hear it. I think I'll read from Ledgers, which is the first story in the collection. It's The story is about Nora, an ornithologist who's returned home to Gunnison, Colorado to care for her father, who's a rancher who's had a stroke. They've sold their family land and she is conflicted a little bit about her return. We let the dust settle for a month or two after Pop had his stroke, and then we sold the family ranch all in one piece to a cattleman from Montrose, Henson, whose name Pop didn't recognize. I had been living on the Farallones, studying site fidelity of ashy storm petrels, birds most people probably haven't heard of and might not ever. An ill-timed oil spill or other catastrophe on the central coast of California could wipe the whole species off the map. 
It was a plum research gig, every ornithologist's dream job, but I love my pop, so I gave it up and came home. That closing was the only time I've been happy that Pop lost his speech because I didn't want him to say out loud how much he wished I'd taken an interest in the damn cows instead of the damn birds. Pop refused to let a subdivision be his last crop, so he gave Henson a good deal. We closed at the end of September. Henson signed the papers with ranchers' hands, leathery and sun-weathered, just like Pop's. Henson is my age, plus a few years maybe, divorced, one young daughter, and I'm flat suspicious of the guy. How does anyone in their 30s come out of that recession with the kind of money it takes to buy a quarter section on the river, water rights attached, outside Gunnison? Pop's strokes stole a lot of things from him that I miss too, some more precious than his ability to manage cattle, verbs, for example, and with them, anything resembling sentences. Also, the use of his entire right side and all our savings and medical bills, though that last resolved just fine when we sold the ranch. The worst is that he can't say my name, Nora. Instead, Pop calls me Vera. I've stopped bothering to correct him. Vera, my mother, died in a puddle of her own blood and placenta the day I was born, waiting for the ambulance that turned down County Road 68 instead of County Road 68 and a half. Pop's not confused the way you'd think. He knows the difference between his dead wife and his living daughter. For the first month or so, he'd wince every time he said it. Vera, shake his head sadly, look down at his shoes. New Balance sneakers with therapeutic elastic laces, not the boots he wore his whole life. A baseball cap has replaced his Stetson. He's nearly unrecognizable. My friend Julie is his speech therapist, and she tells me that he still thinks Nora when he looks at me. It's just the signal gets lost in the aphasic fog that has settled somewhere between Pop's brain and his tongue. When he thinks Nora but says Vera, it sounds like Vera. He gets stuck on that first V sound, which according to the manner of articulation chart Julie put on our fridge, is a labiodental fricative. Sounds dirty, I said to Pop, labiodental. I adjusted the magnets so I could see the whole consonant chart, the nasals and the alveolars, the voiced and the voiceless. Pop laughed and my heart fluttered a little, which I took as proof that it's not broken all the way. When Pop laughs, it feels like we're having a conversation instead of a series of Nora monologues, which are far less graceful than the stories Pop used to tell. There is no real prognosis for Pop. No clear number of months to live. No percentage of independence he'll regain. Pop appears at once, fragile and strong, like an egg. Every morning when I tie his shoes, I think, this might be the last time I tie his shoes. And also I wonder, how many more times will I have to tie his shoes? If you're just joining us, you're listening to a conversation with Colorado-based short story writer Claire Boyles, author of Sight Fidelity. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. Our full conversation can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook. Your book does center women, women certainly as the heads of household or as caregivers, too. So open-ended, what can you tell me about being a woman in the American West? I guess I I want to preface my answer to this by saying that the older I get, the less 
use I really have for the gender binary. And I, I do identify as a woman and have my whole life and did not question the gender binary until fairly recently. So I just want to say, like, I think there are many ways to live in the world. And I don't want my focus on women to feel exclusive in any way. But I think... <laughs> I guess I can answer this most clearly in terms of caregiving because caregiving is a really important piece of my life. And it's a really, I've, I feel like it's a very important piece of site fidelity. In multiple stories, women are either raising children or caring for ailing or disabled parents or in not all the stories, but in many of the stories. I think when caregiving is done well, it's so it's a mutual way of caring for each other. Caring for someone and receiving care from that person is a way of living that in our, our culture, which especially in the West, trends like very individualistic, it's devalued. Care work is absolutely devalued. When you're in the midst of it, it can be very overwhelming and no one's coming to help you. I mean, maybe your family is going to pitch in, but like if you're responsible for children or you're responsible for an ailing parent, our society really, you know, we live in a society that sees healthcare as like a nice perk for people who can afford it. I mean, it's just so in that moment, I guess the characters that I wrote that are caring for people are mostly women in the collection. And it's just a short leap, caring for humans and helping humans, whether they're abled or disabled or children or adults. It helps you care for humanity more freely, I think, all humanity. And I think it also can be a stepping stone to caring for animals and plants and ecosystems. And eventually, I think caregiving has the power to transform the way the society values all of those things, ecosystems, humans, it's, it's a way to build a society like on an individual level, it would be a way to build a more caring and healthy society that's safe for life of all kinds. I mean, I think that's maybe a little bit idealistic, but I am a mother, I've I have two children and I was raised with a disabled father and I just see caring for others as like sort of a being intentional about it is sort of a radical thing to do and seeing it as a way of life that can extend out of your own, away from your own people and into the world could be very transformative. And I tried in Sight Fidelity to include both those ways of caregiving, but also more traditional forms of activism. You know, women who have careers that make a difference or women who are doing actual direct action outside their homes to protest things that make a difference. But I didn't want to devalue what in my experience has been often work done by women in the home that I think does matter to the broader society. You've written in Sight Fidelity a story called Alto Cumulus Standing Lenticulars. Um, these are clouds that can withstand really harsh winds. And throughout this collection, your characters are, and it's not for a lack of a better term, but I just want to like lean into this like counter pun. Your characters are grounded by the sky. Clouds and comets and extraterrestrial beings. And I'm going to use a phrase you've written in the book, Claire, tell me about your enthusiasm for stargazing. 
Uh, that is something I am also learning as I go, but I have become really fascinated with everything we cannot see in the sky. I mean, light pollution is really changing, I think, the human experience of the sky and the difference between what I can see in the sky from my house here in town and what I could see in the sky on my farm out where there was no light pollution was really remarkable. And because we were always shorthanded, we were always behind, we were always working, we were always working at night. I mean, we were out there with headlamps harvesting broccoli, we were out there. And the difference between a full moon night and a new moon night, I got a real sense being outside at night like that of why the sky mattered for all these years. And so I, in the past few years, I've really been trying to seek out dark sky areas. And there is an organization called the International Dark Sky Association. And to try to learn more to identify constellations, I'm not great at it. They shift, you know, they're <laughs> seasonal and they shift and it's hard, but it just takes starting. So I'm fascinated with it. But again, it's like I can see it and not know anything about it. And so trying to learn about it is I'm just at the beginnings. I have become obsessed with doing it to the point where I talked my husband into this past December. There's a meteor shower in December called the Geminids, and it happens pretty much every year. And we drove out in the middle of December to uh, out past our farm, actually, but it's a state park that's a dark sky park. And we spent the night in December in the back of his truck. We just took like all our clothes and every blanket, and it was four degrees. <laughs> And I mean, there was, there were so many of them and we just saw it all night. And then we, I'd sort of like drift off and wake up and see them again. And it just felt like magic and, and it's becoming rare. I think we're losing it. We're losing access to it. We're losing maybe interest in it. And if we go too far, losing access and losing interest, we'll lose something about what it means to be human in this world and why it matters that the world exists and why it matters that we experience it and what it means to us. It will be easier to let it go if we never experience what's most beautiful and amazing about it. And I think that the sky holds so many fascinations for me, the stars, the clouds, the comets. I mean, they're just the possibility of extraterrestrial life. I mean, really the probability of extraterrestrial life. Um, all of that is, is just fascinating to me. And I, my characters maybe are more fascinated with pieces of it than I am. I mean, they're not exactly directly, but I, but I am interested and have become more interested in the past few years. What books of the American West or set in the American West inspire you or inspired Sight Fidelity? There's two short story collections that come to mind right away. One is Sabrina and Karina by a writer named Callie Fajardo Anstein, which is a beautiful, troubling look at the West. And there's another collection that's a little bit older by a writer named Nina McConaughey called Cowboys and East Indians. And um, that's set in Wyoming, in rural spaces in Wyoming. Oh, also like anything by Laura Pritchett. She's also um, a Colorado writer and her short stories and novels are 
are beautiful and I think also complicate the myth of the American West in important ways. Claire, thank you so much for being here. Lauren, I really, I will admit, I didn't know that this podcast existed before Rose <laughs> told me that I would be appearing, but I have actually been working through the archives and I just, I love your show. I think what you're doing is really amazing and thanks for doing what you're doing. It's, it's amazing. Look for more information about Claire at mtpr.org where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Peter Hogue and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Our recording engineer is Beth Ann Austin. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.